Have you ever received contradictory advice before? This is an audience participation raise your hand question. Raise your hand if you have ever received contradictory advice. If you're online, drop that in the chat. Isn't that frustrating? You ask one person one thing and they say, oh, well, obviously you gotta do this. Then you go ask someone else something, they say, no, don't do that. That's the worst thing that you could do. This year, my wife and I had a beautiful baby girl, the most adorable thing on the face of planet Earth. Yes, clap for that, clap for that. Yes, 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 don't even try to tell me different, I will fight you. Anyways, uh, but so we have our darling baby girl and whenever we have a question about raising and you know just kind of sustaining and keeping alive this small human that we are now responsible for, whenever we have a question, we have an ever-present friend in times of trouble that we can ask if we have a question. His name's Google, and he lives on my phone, and I will ask Google, I'll say, Google, like, tell me what I need to do. Like, how do we get her to eat? How do we get her to do other things? Like, what? What do we do? And you read one article, and it says, well, very simple, you do all of this. And then you look at the next article, and it says, well, if you do anything from that first article, she will be messed up for life. So do not do any of that. You're like, what am I supposed to do? And maybe you have felt this in other areas of life, too. When we were kids, and you know your parents were teaching you how to do chores, and mom wants it done this way, and dad wants it done this way. Well, then you go to school. This teacher wants you to format and write your essays this way, and then you walk into the classroom, and that same essay that would have gotten a good grade in that class now gets you a bad grade in this class, and that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Then you go to the workplace. This never happens at work, right? Where one person wants it done one way, and maybe their boss wants it done a different way. And you're like, what do I, who do I, how do, what? What do I do? And maybe you have felt the tension before. This also plays out in the area of our finances. Go figure. Now, when I preached this message at Village Church um, last week, we were all laughing and giggling when I'm talking about, you know, babies and articles and all that. And then I'm like, and personal finance and you could hear a pin drop. Because all of a sudden, everyone's like, whoa, it was Black Friday. Like, what? What are we, like, we're talking about money in church? Well, yes, because we happen to interact with money a lot in our lives. And at Dallas Church, at Village Church, hopefully at a lot of other churches too, like, we believe God cares about every aspect of our life, our, our marriages, our professional life, our home life, our financial life, and we like to be compartmentalized sometimes, and what God wants us to be is integrated. People of integrity, that where every area of our life is brought together. And so yes, here we are, welcome to Dallas Church, in the final number of our sermon series on money. I love the way Pastor Mike Miller at Village said it this way. He said, this series is not actually about money. This series is about sanctification or spiritual growth. It is really not about the money. It's about the heart that is behind it. So here's our ground rules. These are the ground rules that Pastor Ben Bauman, our lead pastor, set as he was taking us through this series. So number one, God owns, we manage. Number two, wealth is a tool to be used for good. 
Number three, blessed people bless people. And we want to be extensions of what God has given us. And number four, we trust God, not money. And so we're really going to kind of zero in on that fourth one today as we are talking about savings. Wahoo! Here we go. So um, when it comes to the idea of savings, I have felt tugged in my life with different directions and what even to do. So I started my adult and professional life um, as a camp counselor at youth camps throughout the summer. And I had this like great system where I was basically living out of a duffel bag and my car. And then Friday night when the camps were over, like I'd go back to my childhood bedroom at my parents' house, do some laundry, jump in the car, drive to the next camp. I thought this was great. And then I got married. And my wife does not think that is great. She wants us to have a roof over our heads and health insurance and benefits packages. And how unreasonable is that? Come on. No, no, she's great. Like, all of a sudden, I had to maybe grow up a little bit. And we, when we first got married, um, I was a tutor for homeschool students. And she was teaching in the schools here in Dallas. And so we were two teachers on summer vacation. And we had more money as college students. Like, I'm just coming out of college. She had worked for a year. We had more money than we had ever seen in our life. Like, we could go to this restaurant called Applebee's. What? It was so cool. And we're like living high on the hog, like having a great old time. Sometimes we got sushi. And we lived like that for a while. And I can point to the day on the calendar that the honeymoon phase ended. Because all of a sudden, we had to grow up real quick. We had to start thinking about our life, thinking about our plans, because here was this crazy week that just life came at us. So on Sunday, we were in a five-car pileup on I-5, which was terrifying and scary. We Thankfully, nobody was terribly hurt in this, and I think God was in some of that, but here we are, like I'm on the phone with insurance companies for the next like two weeks as all of everybody involved is like, you know, getting their story straight and I'm the one dumb enough to answer the phone. So here I am on the phone working through all this, trying to get our biggest asset. We had one car and we were trying to figure out how we now buy a car, like what? We have to spend how much money? And so here we are in the middle of that. Then Wednesday, one of us gets food poisoning for 24 full hours, this awful. And then on Friday, there's a drastic change in our employment situation. And we kind of went like regroup that Saturday. We're just like, whoa. We need to grow up a little bit. And so then we went on Christmas break. We come back in January, and we do what I think is the best decision I've ever made for my marriage ever, besides you know, picking the best wife. But, that, but like, you know, there, there you go. That's my point. So, um, but but like we enrolled in Financial Peace University at this church, and from this stage in those chairs, we had elders and members of this church, some of you, you know, you're in the room, and we made friends, and people came around us, and these grown-ups told us their stories, and we started to grow up a little bit. And I think that was really good for us with mentors coming alongside us, but you fast forward a couple years, okay? 
Fast forward a couple of years, we've moved down to Phoenix, Arizona, we've moved back to Dallas, we've done some grad school, we've navigated some things, and I am goal-oriented. I am going after these financial benchmarks for our families. And I found myself in a different predicament that I had never been in before, where all of a sudden, I had a savings amount, I was going for more, but every time, something in life would happen that would ding my savings account, I started to have some pretty severe anxiety reactions. And I was like, no, like you can't touch the savings account. Like we have been working so hard to not be the stupid young guy that lives out of his car. Like I'm trying to be the responsible adult and life is not cooperating right now. And once again, here I am with mentors gathered around me and they did not actually slap me up the side of the head, but there was some very gentle, like, so Andrew, maybe listening to two hours of finance podcast today and reading um, leadership and finance books until 11, 10 p.m. at night is not the best way for you to have peace and a good night's sleep. Just maybe. And so here I am, maybe that side's wrong too. So like, what am I supposed to do? And maybe you felt that before. You felt torn and tugged with all the different advice, all the different stories. Well, I think our culture has some bad stories that we can reject. We pick up stories about money. Um, one psychologist calls these the invisible scripts that run our life. We didn't sign up for those. We didn't go to the casting call, but we got those scripts and we ran through them. That comes from our family of origin, what your parents did and did not do with money. That comes from advertisements, cultural stories, keeping up with the Joneses. Does anyone know the Joneses? What are they doing? Where are they going? And why are we trying to get there before them? Okay. And then also like everyone else, we have traumas in our life around money and that shapes how we react and what we do. So here are some bad stories, then let's talk about some good stories. Number one is consumption. That's a bad story. Consumption says, I am what I do. I gotta go have experiences. I have the money in the bank account now, so I better go do something with it before something comes up and I don't have it. You use it or you lose it. But on the other side, you have hoarding resources. That's a bad story too. We have like every year, somebody's gonna redo the Christmas Carol, right? Ebenezer Scrooge, once again, is going to be recast. Well, that's because that's a bad story to hold your resources, say, I am not safe unless I have more. On the other side, there's also asceticism, which we might not say it that way. When's the last time you busted that out at the water cooler? Like, I'm just trying to reject the story of asceticism, but, but for real, as we were crafting this series, our preaching team was like, well, here's the deal. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is, the obsession with money, going after money is. And so we need to move past maybe some guilt and some shame that comes with our finances. I talk to people and, and it comes up like we're, we feel guilt and shame when we're in debt. We feel guilt and shame when we're not in debt. We feel guilt and shame that we don't have an emergency fund. We feel guilt and shame that we do have an emergency fund. And I wonder if in the same way that God in the garden looks at Adam and Eve and says, who told you you were naked? Like who told you this was wrong? I wonder for some of us, if God might say, who told you you're bad with money? 
Who told you you're not doing a good job? Who told you you can't do a good job in the future? And maybe we're living with some of that story because God is the God of hope and the God of tomorrow. And he doesn't say that what you did yesterday is so bad that he can't do anything with your future. And then also, let's reject the story of materialism. It says, I am what I have. There's a scorecard in life. It's my bank account. It's my net worth. It's what's sitting in my driveway. And we can all agree that's not good. That's a sad way to live your life and find your value as a human. But all of these stories are competing in our life. So let's look at what the Bible would have to say. Let's pray and open God's word. Father God, we invite you here that your spirit would speak through your word, that you would change and shape us and mold us into the people that you would have us to be. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. One side of specifically savings and like going after financial planning in the Bible, like we have to talk about the word wisdom. We have to talk about the word wisdom because wisdom is this thing that God who created the universe wove a fabric into the fabric. He wove this thing called wisdom. And it's almost, if you read the book of Proverbs, there's some poetry that it's almost like wisdom is like right there with God, helping him make all this stuff. And so there is an extent to which living the Christian life, living God's way, saves us from pain. I have seen in my life the fruit of I've made decisions that were submitted to Jesus, and I have avoided some painful circumstances. Maybe you've seen that too. On the other hand, there are also times where it has cost me something. I have endured pain because I was trying to make the right call. And then there's all those times I endured pain because I did something stupid. We can have a whole sermon about that another day. But wisdom from the book of Proverbs would say, when it comes to savings, yes, do it. Should we save? Yes. We know this. It needs to be in our budget, in our plan somewhere. Proverbs 21.20 says, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. The Hebrew word there for devours is almost like he's chugging it. He's gulping it down. Everything that the foolish man gets. And on the other side, in the house of the wise, there is wealth. There is abundance. Now, I do want to give us a little bit of a seatbelt as we jump into Proverbs, because Proverbs is poetry over promises. Like 80 to 90% of the time, this is how the world works. But our Bible not only has Proverbs, but also has the book of Job. And Job is a wise man who makes good decisions, and he still suffers. And maybe that's the life experience of some of us. We have made good and godly decisions, and we have still ended up in hard places. But the book of Proverbs has these poetries about this is the way wisdom works in the world, by and large. If you are wise, you have set aside some margin. And we, with the Western mindset, and maybe some Ebenezer Scrooge running in the back of our brains, might look at the wise man and say, look how evil he is. He has oil and treasure, and it's all stored up. Well, hang on a minute. Because in the Eastern mindset, in the Middle Eastern culture, if you show up on that wise man's doorstep, do you know what you get? Treasure, food, hospitality, he's caring for you. Because there is never an instance there where it's all about them. I think implied in this, 
The wise man, he's got treasure, which is in the ancient world, your liquid cash. You know, you can go get what you need. And then oil, which is your foodstuffs, because you've got to have bread and make some oil with that. You've got some hygiene and health things with oil. You also have the energy that powers your house. In the wise man's dwelling, there is margin. And so he can take care of what I like to call the AOWs, the alien, the orphan, and the widow, the people who need help, the people who need a strong person with margin to come alongside and help them out. And maybe you've experienced that. We're going into the Christmas season where people are, maybe they are, just we're more generous, right? Maybe we need to think about that and go, okay, maybe not one month a year, let's do the whole time, right? But But in the Christmas season, maybe you've received, maybe you've given, and there's this beautiful story that God is telling in the world when we do that. Maybe when it comes to saving, providing for a family might be the most heroic thing any of us do in life. And they're not always making movies about it, right? Like, that's not coming soon to a theater near you, the Marvel movie, the stay at, you know, like, the working dad. Like, that's, no. We don't always tell the stories about that, but that's the heroism and the day-to-day of what God built us to do, to love and to take care of our kids and our parents and our spouses and the people that God has brought in our life. And so, yes, we save not just for ourselves so that we feel better, but because God has a mission in it. Let's keep trucking. Wisdom also says that we save for unexpected things and expected things. When it comes to um, expected things, Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. You're welcome to turn to your neighbor. Do not call them a sluggard, but just say the word sluggard because it's really fun. Sluggard, there you go. No, but he's saying, go to the ant. Consider her ways. Be wise. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. This world has an ebb and a flow, an on season and an off season. There is a time for us to build our savings. There's a time for us to draw on our savings. And that's not good or bad. That's the way the world is. God has built a Sabbath rhythm where we're supposed to take time to be off. And we can see things coming, right? Christmas is on December 25th this year. Next year, it's also on December 25th. Like, there's things coming up. And we all know, like, we don't, many of us don't want to work the jobs that we're in forever. Retirement is a thing, right? There are stuff that comes up with with us. My wife is a teacher. And so we have an ebb and a flow to the financial cash flow. And at the beginning of summer, we get the lump sum and we need to plan and expect and work through it because you don't want to run out of money before you run out of summer. And that's life. But then also we plan for unexpected things. Proverbs 27, 12, a sensible person sees danger and takes cover. The inexperienced keep going and are punished. We can expect the unexpected in this world. We know, we all know, this is not news to anybody. Tires go flat, right? People get sick. Job situations change. Like this all happens. Retirement is a thing. And so wise people make space for stuff 
Wise people make space. And that doesn't always mean we're going to have everything that we want, everything that we need, but there is a level of living with margin, which last week Ben preached a really good message on kind of time and resources and stuff. So if you want to go back to our website or our podcast, listen to that. That could also be a really good resource. And then the last thing wisdom would say with savings is we play the long game. You start small and you play the long game. It builds slowly over time. Proverbs 13, 11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers it little by little will increase it. And I might have some guesses why, but God seems obsessed with putting the best things in life. They take little by little, time after time, day after day. Eugene Peterson described the Christian life as a long obedience in the same direction. Because there is fruit that comes from doing the same thing, being faithful, showing up. That's a little, little phrase that the Bullocks have started using is we're like, you showed up today. You did good. Doesn't matter that you didn't run a marathon. Doesn't matter that you didn't, you know, do everything you wanted to do. But did you start? Did you show up? Did you do the little things? And some of us have this all or nothing mindset with finances. We're like, well, if I'm not getting compound interest from when I was 18 years old, making, you know, 15% of my income into Roth IRA mutual funds, making 12%. No, like, just start. Just start making some good choices now. The Bible says, do not despise the small beginnings. Let's get started. This year, I transitioned from cycling to running, and I felt ridiculous because I used to log these really long rides, and all of a sudden, I was doing these really short runs. And I felt so stupid. My brain was like, Andrew, you are not. It took me a month to get up to the point where I could run a mile because my joints just would not take it, which is not good because, like, I don't know what that means for the rest of my life here. But, but anyway, so, like, here, here I am. I'm trying to do this. And in the back of my head, I had to resist that, Andrew, you're not training for a marathon. This is pointless. And we have that. But maybe we just take some small steps and we keep going. So that's wisdom. Thank you, wisdom. But that's not all the Bible would have to say. The Bible would also have a perspective of faith. And if we look at what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, we get a whole different perspective. Faith says, ultimately, God is in control and he will provide. Matthew 6, 25 says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Jesus says, look at the birds. They're doing pretty good. Look at the flowers. They're dressed better than you. God is taking care of all of them. And there is a level to where we let the anxiety go where it needs to. Verse 34 says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Some of you need to take worrying about tomorrow. I say some of you, I'm included in that, right? Some of us, like, take worrying about tomorrow, and we put that on tomorrow's job description. That's tomorrow's job. It's not yours. It's today, by the way. Let tomorrow worry about itself. 
Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And maybe that could help us pray better. Maybe that help, could help us get better at praying. Because maybe what we need to do is less worrying with our hands folded and start bringing our heart in the presence of God and putting it in his hands. And here's the really hard part. When you put it in God's hands, you have to leave it there. Because I'm really good at being like, oh, God, you haven't done anything yet. I'll take that. I'll take it back. You know, you do the whole big ceremony. God, it's all in your hands for the next five minutes. <laughs> then I'll go get this. And this next one, maybe you wouldn't say it this way, but I wonder for how many of us this is the script that we're running with this. Faith would say, we don't need to ensure ourselves against the future that God has for us. We don't need to build up a cushion or safety to keep us safe from what our good Father has in our future. And that, that's kind of some big stuff I've been, I've been wrestling and processing through with that, but I hear this story as I talk to people. They say, don't pray for patience, because you know what will happen if you pray for patience? God will give you some. Whoa. No, you'll have the opportunity to be patient. Don't pray for resilience, because God will give you an opportunity to practice some resilience. What kind of an attitude is that? Maybe God has something better for us than trying to be comfy and sitting on the sidelines. Maybe we do need to reorient ourselves and our picture of who God is. When I was in high school, the worship pastor at my church had a tree fall on his car. And the insurance company said, we can't cover that. That was an act of God. Think about that for a second. It's pastor's car. Act of God. But here's what I think is ridiculous, okay? How often in the public sector, well, we're not going to say God. We're not going to talk about God. We're not going to do God. But insurance code, God is alive and well there. What? What kind of perspective is that? But God is not out to get us. He's our good Father, Matthew 7, 9 through 11, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts for your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Your God, your dad, and we all bring our broken understanding and our story of what that means, but God is is in control, and at some point we got to trust him. And maybe we need to stop being the, the kid. Now, this was me in the car as a kid, right? I was like, how fast are we going? Are we almost there? Like, how, how many miles yet? Are you going the most efficient way? Why are we going this way? Why didn't we take that other highway? Well, maybe we need to just settle back and be the kid that says, it's okay. My dad is driving. And maybe that's where our heart needs to be. Faith also has the eternal perspective. Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. There's a story that's been with me for a long time. It's a little silly. It is not theologically accurate, okay? So that's my disclaimer before we jump into this pastoral story. So this guy was really rich, and he made a deal with God. 
He said, when I die, I want to be able to take at least one suitcase of my possessions and wealth and everything that I've earned up to heaven with me. Okay? And God's like, okay, fine. For some reason, this time. That's the theological inaccuracy. You see this? Okay. But so um, this guy puts it all in gold, puts it all in his suitcase. He gets up to heaven. He shows up. Everybody gathers around him and they're like, whoa, you brought a suitcase. What was so important that you had to bring it with you? And he opens up his suitcase and he's got all the gold in there and everyone looks at him and they're like, why would you bring pavement? I'll give you a minute on that one. Took first service about 20 seconds to, to get it. No, but because it doesn't matter. Like the, the perspective. And so, yes, that story is a little trite. But I love that reminder about priorities. And so, okay, do you feel the tension yet? Wisdom says, save. But faith says, God has it all. So what are we supposed to do? Well, in the tension there, I think there's a sweet spot. And I think that sweet spot is called faithfulness. And the tension between wisdom and faith in the middle is faithfulness. Faithfulness says, ultimately, it all belongs to God. I'm just managing it. Psalm says, the earth is the Lord, is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell inside of it. It is not your job to do everything. Some of you maybe you're like, yeah, I know that. Well, some of you really need to hear that, right? It's not our job. Like, we have a God that is, you know, the, the CEO of everything, and he has put you in control of you incorporated. And you get to manage you. And to an extent, like, ultimately, it is all God's. And I wonder if we have that perspective of stewards and managing it, if that would make us live differently today. Many of us have a perspective of, well, these are the things I want to do when. These are the things I want to do if. In the future, well, let's start some of them. Let's do some of those small things. Faithfulness also says, I am grateful for what God has given me. This verse, I wish that I would say it to myself more. Psalm 16.6 says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And that is a story of gratitude, over-optimizing, over-striving, because you and I have limits in our life. There's a limit to what we can do. There's a limit to what we can uh, have finances and energy. And at some point, you got to sleep. And maybe when you get tired, instead of being overwhelmed and frustrated and like, God, why'd you give me so much to do? Maybe we get to say thank you for giving me a stopping point where I get tired and I can come back here tomorrow. I get a new chance to keep doing this because the boundary lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Some of us wish we were more disciplined. Some of us wish we were more spontaneous. Some of us wish, you know, we had more charisma or we had this or we had that or this or whatever. And at some point we need to be grateful for who God built you to be. And faithfulness is doing right by what God has given you. And the final thing faithfulness would say is that it is all about the heart. It is all about 
the heart. Randy Alcorn in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, says the difference between saving and hoarding resources is not the amount. It is the attitude. And maybe our attitude needs to be checked. And so I'd, I'd ask you, like, what does faithfulness mean for you? What does faithfulness look like? Today And so often I wish God would give me the directions just like Siri does on my phone. And I shudder to say that because then all of a sudden it's going to pop up. But, like, but you get the turn left here, go over here, go this way, go that way. God doesn't do that. God gives you a compass. And he says, that's true north. Make some decisions. Whew. Maybe some of us have some decisions to make about faithfulness. Maybe... Faithfulness means we need to put saving and giving somewhere in our financial plan. To whatever extent that makes sense for you, that needs to show up. Maybe you need to do this funny little exercise and sign your assets over to God. I'm not telling you to go get it notarized, but make this little thing where you say, God, this is not my job. I'm going to do my best, but it's ultimately yours. Maybe finances is too important for us to live divided as a team or a family or a spouse and relationship there. So maybe you and your spouse need to get on the same page. Maybe that's worth going after. Maybe it's worth getting an accountability partner if you are single or you don't have someone else in your life. So someone is encouraging you and cheerleading you and, and uh, checking up on you to make sure that you're still doing it. Proverbs says, right? Actually, it's Ecclesiastes. But the cord of three strands, we are not built to do this alone. Maybe we need to believe in hope with our financial life instead of being so bent out of shape about what has happened up to this point. Because every time you start talking saving and finances, there are these charts on the internet that are like, well, if you started saving when you were 15 years old, you'd have. Da -da 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 -da. Well, I'm not 15 years old. What am I supposed to do now? And so don't let the shame jump in, but realize that our God is the God of tomorrow, and he's okay with dealing with what happened yesterday. Now, maybe you need to take some action, and we need to stop talking about this? You know, it's like you talk about going to the gym or you talk about starting this good habit. Well, maybe we need to do something. For some of us, maybe we need to save less. Maybe there's an amount that we've decided and we said, I need this to be safe and God's going, hmm, maybe you need to, to give some of that. Maybe you need to spend some of that. Maybe you need to enjoy some of that because if you set the line here, you're saying, it's okay, God, this is where the boundary lines have fallen for me. And maybe it's not even finances. Maybe there's a different area. And God's like, you got your money dialed in. I know I don't, so I'm always in need of the checkup, right? But, but maybe there's another area where God is calling us to faithfulness. Because what would it be if we were a church community if we were a group of believers that had margin, we had space, we walked in wisdom and faith and in the middle of faithfulness, knowing who we are and what it is that God has called us to be, there's a confidence in there. Not an anxiety, not a shame that I have to run around and do everything for everybody all the time, but just be the best version of you that God has called you to be. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness. 
and all these things will be added to you. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. We pray that you would help us to be wise. God, you would help us to be full of faith and trust in who you are. God, help us to be faithful with what it is that you have put on our plate in front of us in this season. Jesus, we trust you. It is in your name we pray. Amen.